Morning. Like, like Bruce said, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the front of you um, on page 5, or yeah, 545. Uh, today he's going to be talking on the greatness and the goodness of God's love. So follow along in the passage, uh, Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and have laid waste his mountain and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but will return and rebuild the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of the wickedness, and the people against whom God will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today, and we are just in awe of who you are, your power, your might, but also your grace and mercy for us, God. I pray that uh, you would give Bruce the words to speak and that you would open our hearts to what he has to say today. Uh, thank you for all you've done for us in your name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, I was the, uh, prior to becoming the pastor here, I was the youth pastor here in our church for, for numerous years and, and now even have two teenage boys of my own. And, uh, and so after serving in youth ministry for over 10 years and and now raising two teenagers, I'm, I'm convinced that most teenagers are remarkably similar creatures. For instance, most teenagers implement a similar strategy when confronted with an error of their doing or a, a wrongdoing. It may present itself something like this. A father walks into his son's room and says, you did not clean up your room. And so you're not leaving the house tonight. You're not going out. And the teenager replies, what do you mean I didn't clean up my room? And the father says, your mother and I told you to clean this place up, and there are still things everywhere. The teenager says, but I organized it all. I know where everything is. But there are still dirty clothes piled up in the corner. Can you not see them? And the teenager says, yes, but that's better than them being everywhere, scattered all over the floor. And the father says, but I said everything has to be off the floor. And the teenager responds, well, what did you mean by everything? Even though conversations like this can be frustrating for the parent, listen, they are needed. Now, parental parameters are not enforced for cruelty's sake. We're, you know, parents don't put these into place to be mean to their teenagers necessarily, but rather for protection. True, clothes on the floor is not the end of the world, is it? And from this side, we say amen. Clothes on the floor is not the end of the world. But there's a bigger purpose for picking things up off the floor. More important than the room being cleaned is the, the attitude of the son, the obedience of the son. And this is what allows then for a more intimate personal relationship between the parent and the teenager. In a similar way, God has outlined rules and even regulations for our protection as well as for intimate 
fellowship, intimate relationship with Him. And so when we stray from God, He lovingly corrects us. But here's what I want you to understand. Here's the the gist of what we're going to see this morning, is that He does so as a loving Heavenly Father. God Himself tells us here in Malachi chapter 1, in verse 6, He says, I am the Father. So whatever your preconceived idea of a father is this morning, I want to ask you to just kind of set it aside for a moment. We don't start with our earthly fathers and then judge our heavenly father. Rather, we start with our heavenly father, which means even the fatherless have a father. Even those who have a good father have a perfect father. Heavenly Father. And this morning what we're going to see is that our Heavenly Father, He wants to speak to us. And through Malachi, the prophet, God the Father wants to speak to each of you here individually as well. Now, this passage of Scripture we're going to look at, these these verses here, Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5, really sets the foundation for the entire book of Malachi. And so I'm really excited that you are here this morning. This is not by accident. It is by divine purpose, and God has a reason he wants us to hear this. It sets the foundation. And so this is an important message that God is bringing to us this morning. Here's the essence of what our Heavenly Father says to us. As we saw last Sunday... The whole book of Malachi Malachi to us, hey, is to live fully devoted in your relationship with me. And so throughout the book of Malachi, we will see now how God, the Father, a loving Heavenly Father, a perfect Father, confronts, He corrects and challenges the children of Israel about straying from Him, about living half-hearted instead of living fully devoted in their relationship to God. The Father. So we have to ask, where then will God begin? Where will God begin with people like us who are prone to live half-hearted in our relationship to Him? Last Sunday we learned that the people in Malachi's day had become somewhat careless in their worship, somewhat indifferent to God's truth, even disobedient to God's covenant, faithless in their marriages, and and stingy in their offerings. Worst of all, the Israelites, that is the the children of God, His chosen people, they, they didn't even realize the condition in which they were living in. They could see nothing wrong with the way they were living. They could see nothing wrong with the way that they were approaching God in worship. So where, where will God the Father begin with the correction of His children? Well, I love where God begins. He begins with the greatness of His love for His people. The very first thing we learn is that our Heavenly Father loves us. But the children of Israel... They had forgotten this glorious, wonderful truth of the greatness of God's love. In fact, they had grown skeptical of God's love for them. And in so many ways, they were missing the obvious. God's great 
love for them. And in so many ways, we are just like the children of Israel. I invite you, if you want, you're welcome to take notes, follow along. There's an outline in your bulletin, or you can follow along on the the screen behind me. But notice this, missing the obvious. We are often oblivious to God's obvious love for us. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to go through life oblivious to the obvious? Well, of course you haven't noticed it. Why? Because it's easy to become oblivious to the obvious, right? Such as when a new Dunkin' Donuts opens up down the road from where you live. A road that you travel down numerous times a week. And so when you're driving down the road with the family and your wife says, oh, look, a new Dunkin' Donuts is open. And you politely, lovingly say, honey, that Dunkin' Donuts has been open for three months now. Or when you're driving home from work with your headlights on high beam and every other car on the other side of the highway flashes their headlights on high beam as they approach you. And when you get home, you tell your wife, Honey, you just wouldn't believe how nice the people were driving home today. Everyone kept flashing their high beam headlights, warning me of a police radar. But what's odd is I never saw any police cars. Totally oblivious to the obvious. It's easy to miss the obvious in life. It's just like the people in Malachi's day. We ourselves, we are oblivious to God's obvious love for us. And so God the Father, he starts his message to the people in Malachi's day, just as he starts his message for us today, in his message of living fully devoted, and he reminds us of his great love for us. And so what I want us to do is to see this love. I want us to unpack it here for a few minutes here, and unpack and dive into the greatness of God's love for each and every one of you. First of all, number one, God's love for his people is declared. God's love for his people is declared. Verse 2 is the first statement that God makes to his people. It's a wonderful statement. Look at it in your notes or in your Bible, what God says. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. What a place to begin. What a declaration of God's love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, for all you Star Wars fans here, how many saw the new Star Force Awakens? Yeah, yeah, it was a great movie. I recommend it. For all you Star Wars fans, some of you may think that God is a force, uh, that he's impersonal, but he's not. God is a father, and he's personal. And his love is personal. A force does not love you. But God the Father loves you. And he declares to us this morning, the first words out of his mouth to us in this book is, I have loved you. Now this is antithetical to every other religious system and teaching in the world today. In In varying ways, every other religious system when you think about it, it's really all about what we would call works. It's all about what you do to earn God's favor, to earn God's love. And if any other religion were to be writing the book of Malachi, it would probably say, if you obey me, then I will love you. 
It starts with you. It rises and falls on you. It's predicated upon you. If you do what? If you obey me, if you please me, if you do this and this and this, then I will love you. Only the God of the Bible, though, declares first and foremost, I love you, and because I love you, I want you now to live fully devoted to me. You see, your obedience does not compel God to love you. Rather, God's love compels us to obey Him. God's love, His great love, is what motivates and compels us now to live fully devoted to Him in every area of our lives. Do you see the difference between the two? And get this, God did not love you because you're great. God loved you because He's great. I have loved you says the Lord. Listen, we have done nothing to deserve God's love. And God continues to love us even when we mess up in life. Even when we live half-hearted in our relationship with Him, God continues to love us. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Which means God's love is not only personal because He's a heavenly Father, but His love is perpetual. When God says, I have loved you, the word tense there, that for the word love, it's in the perfect tense indicating that God loved His people, yes, in the past, but it's a continual love. It's a perpetual love. It is an everlasting love in the present and into the future. God could have easily just have said it this way. I have loved you and I still do love you. In other words, God's love, it is an everlasting love. The prophet Jeremiah reminds the people of this in Jeremiah 31.3 when he says, speaking, and God's saying through the prophet, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued to extend faithful love to you. And in declaring his everlasting love for his people, God is also declaring his everlasting commitment to his people. Because what is love without commitment. Beginning with the exodus from slavery in Egypt through the conquest of Joshua in the promised land to the establishment of a kingdom, God had proved over and over in the course of Israel's history tangible evidences of His love for thousands of years. And though God had sent them into exile, Babylonian captivity as punishment for their continued sinfulness, their rebellion, rebelliousness, and their false worship, God never ceased to love his people. 100 years prior to Malachi's prophecy here, God had again proved his love for his people by rescuing them from exile, empowering them to rebuild the city and the temple, and inviting them once again to restore relationship with him through worship. 
And so when you begin to understand the history of Israel, God's people here, you can clearly see the evidence of God's love for his people. But the one thing historians say that we learn from history is that nobody ever learns from history. And that's the case in our second point. Notice this. God's love is not only declared, God declares it clearly. I have loved you. But number two, God's love for his people is doubted. It's doubted. God tells his people, I have loved you. And astonishingly, the people say to God in verse 2, in what way have you loved us? They were so oblivious to God's love for them, it's as if God says, I love you, and they respond back, ho-hum. Big deal. The love of God for his people is so great, though, that it would seem to be beyond questioning. But these people did question it. And many people are questioning God's love even today. Shockingly, these people doubted God's love for them. While they may not have denied that God had loved them in the past, listen, in their present circumstances, they can't see or how or where God is now demonstrating his love to them in the present. And so when God says, I have loved you, they don't believe it. Using the phrase, in what way have you loved us, God, implies that they want some type of proof of God's love. But they also have already concluded in their hearts, there is no proof. They've already made up their minds. God says, I have loved you, and they come back and say, in what way? Prove it. And I know you can't. There's no proof. So why did God's people feel this way? Why were they doubting God's love? Why were they questioning it? Why God had not loved them and still doesn't love them? 100 years has passed since they've returned from exile in Babylon. They're now living in Jerusalem in their homeland. The city walls have been rebuilt under Nehemiah. The temple has been restored under Zerubbabel. And worship has resumed. It's been a hundred years since God promised to institute peace and bring prosperity back to the people and the land. God promised them fruitfulness. He promised safety. He promised even respect from other nations of the world upon Israel. But they have not yet experienced any of these things. The promises of God have not been fulfilled in the time or in the way that they expected, in the way that they wanted God to meet their needs. And therefore, in their eyes, since God hasn't been true on his promises, they feel like God does not love them. You see, Israel, the people of God here, back in their homeland, back in the city of Jerusalem, they were hurting. They were hurting financially, they were hurting politically, and they were hurting even morally. And so they do what we all do when we find ourselves in those circumstances. They begin to doubt God's love for them. And they begin to cry out and to say within their heart, if God loved us, life would be better. 
How many of you have been there? How many of you are there, perhaps even right now? If I told you God is a father who loves you, how many of you would say, maybe not ever express it verbally, but you would think it in your heart, I don't feel that. I don't see that in my life that God loves me. I don't even believe that. You see, why do we doubt God's love? Let me give you an answer to this, and your notes come up on the screen. What causes you to doubt God's love? You see, whether it's minor or major, suffering has the power to cause us to doubt God's love. But perhaps the better question is, how do you know when you're doubting God's love? How do you know when you're beginning to do that? And most of the time, we start doubting God's love when we stop believing three things about God the Father. How do you know when you're doubting God's love? Notice this in your notes. Number one, first of all, when you don't believe God is present in your suffering. That is, you don't believe God is personally involved in your suffering. He doesn't care about what you're going through. And when we begin to think that way and even begin to believe that way, we begin to doubt God's love. Second, we doubt God's love when you don't believe God is in control of your suffering. That is, you don't believe God is strong enough or that God is powerful enough to stop your suffering, to get you out of your suffering, to bring relief to your life. And three, we begin to doubt God's love when you don't believe God is good because of your suffering. You see, we think if God was really good, I wouldn't be suffering. I wouldn't be hurting right now. I wouldn't be experiencing the pain that I am. If God was really good, and I am, then He would take away the suffering, and He would give me something better. That's what a good father does, after all. That's what we tend to think. Everyone has personal thresholds that cause us to doubt God's love. Have you noticed that? Every one of us here, we each have our own personal thresholds, and when we reach that threshold, or even go past it, by the circumstances in our life or what we see around the world, that is what triggers us to begin to doubt and question God's love. Sometimes it's simply learning about more people killed in a terrorist attack. That's our threshold. And when we see that in the news and going on around the world, we're like, where's the love of God in the world? Or perhaps it's, it's, it's hundreds of people that are killed by what we call a natural disaster. A tsunami, an earthquake, here lately just the tornadoes and the flooding where several people died. And we're like, what is, what's up with that? And our threshold is here and we see that and we're like, where's the love of God? How can God say that he loves? Or sometimes it's a family member dying. Dying of a disease, dying of cancer, or it's a, a really good friend who, who dies in a car accident. And we can't handle it. We're, our threshold is here. And, and we see that. That comes into our life. And we're like, it triggers that doubt, that question. Or sometimes it's not having enough money to pay your bills, or it's losing your job, or it's having a miscarriage, or it's some other event that leaves us now in a state of hopelessness. Whatever your threshold may be, when we reach it, 
we find it difficult, almost impossible to believe God is present in our suffering, God is in control of our suffering, and God is good because of the suffering. All of this leads us, causes us internally to doubt God's love. And that's when we need to be reminded of God's great love for us. And that's exactly what God does for his people. He reminds them now how he has demonstrated over and over again his love for them. And I want you to see this with me here in these next verses. It brings us to our third point. God's love for his people is demonstrated. It's demonstrated. Despite God's declaration of his love, the nation of Israel doubted God's love by asking, in what way, God, have you loved us? And here's God's answer. Are you ready for it? Here's his answer to their question in verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And you're like, what? What kind of answer is that? Don't you just love it when someone answers a question with a question? How many of you tend to do that? I have to, I have to raise my hand. I, I tend to do that. My wife is shaking her head. I, 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 in fact, I do that a lot with my family, especially my boys, because I'm trying to teach them something. I want them to think through and process something. And that's what God's doing here. He's a heavenly father, and we're his children. And so he answers their question with a question. But understand, it's a rhetorical question. And they already know the answer to the question. Every Israelite on the face of the earth at that time in Malachi's day knew the answer to this rhetorical question by God. They ask a question. Or God says, I have loved you. They say, in what way have you loved us? God comes back and says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And they're like, duh. Yes. Yeah, Lord. And it triggered it triggered history in their lives. Let me show it to you. You see, they already knew, every Israelite knew, Esau was Jacob's brother, sons of Isaac, grandsons of father Abraham. And every Israelite knew that Jacob's name has been changed to Israel, which grew into the nation of Israel. And they also knew the, that Esau's descendants grew into the nation of Edom. Now, you have to remember here, they knew this. We don't always know this, so pay attention. The Israelites were doubting God's love in the present because they had forgotten God's love in the past. And so what God does for his people is he gives them now a history lesson to demonstrate or to prove his everlasting love for them. And so God says to them, hey, hey, let's go back in your family history. In fact, let's go way, way, way back into your family history. And let me just remind you of just how much I have loved you, Israel. And so God takes them all the way back to Genesis. Now, if you don't know, 
Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament, right? We're in what book? Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And so we're in Malachi, and God's now taking them all the way back to Genesis. And He's taken them a long way back in their history as a nation, in effort and in a way to prove His love for them. Now Jacob and Esau, they were not only brothers, they were twin brothers. Esau was born first. And the reason we need to understand that is because customs, Jewish customs in that day, dictated that Esau, as the firstborn, would be the heir of his father's blessing. But that's not what took place. That's not what happened. And so God takes him back to Genesis chapter 25, which records how Jacob, the younger brother, tricked Esau into selling him his birthright for a simple bowl of soup. And so through deception, Jacob receives his father's blessing. And that's not the last time Jacob swindles someone. In fact, Jacob proves himself to be a pretty rotten guy for most of his life. And yet God, get this, God chose him. Jacob, and blessed him instead of Esau, the older brother, which brings us to the very first proof of God's love. How did God demonstrate his love? There's two ways that God identifies for us and for his children this morning. First of all, number one, God demonstrated his love through the election of Jacob and the rejection of Esau. Here's a question to think about probably never thought of it before. That's all right. Think of it this morning. How is it that Israel, the nation of Israel, became God's chosen people, God's special people? How, how did that take place? It's because God made a choice. He chose Jacob and rejected Esau. That's how. It's really that simple. That's what it means when God says now here in verse 2, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have, what's it say? Hated. Jacob I have what? Loved, Esau I have hated. Hold on, say it louder with me. Jacob I have, Esau I have. Oh, in our day's world, in our culture, that's not a very politically correct word to use. But folks, God's not a PC God. Let's be honest. God's statement here, that he loved Jacob, but hated Esau, that troubles some people. That brings tension into our hearts a little bit. Perhaps it even troubles you to think that God hated Esau. But as one commentator explains, the very fact that Jacob was chosen or loved, meant that Esau was rejected or hated. Rejection being implicit in the exercise of choice. 
personal animosity towards Esau is not implied. You go to the New Testament, and according to the Apostle Paul, this choice that God made, I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau, that choice happened before these two dudes were even born. Whoa. Let me read it to you. It's in your notes. Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, speaking of the two twins, the two brothers, and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, that is Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now here's another question. If you were to pick one man to be a nation, to be God's special people, between these two brothers, which guy would you choose? Only one can become the nation of God. Which of the two brothers would you choose? I'll, I'll be flat honest with you. I would have chosen Esau. Hands down, I would have chosen Esau. Not only because he was the firstborn, and I'm the firstborn. He was the firstborn, and he deserved the blessing because he was the firstborn. But not only that, I would have chosen because, well, in my opinion, he's a man's man. The Bible says that Esau was very hairy. His hair was red, so he kind of looks like Elmo. He, he grows up to be a tough guy. He hunts. He fishes. This guy can fight. His brother Jacob is rather, if I can say, he was kind of a mama's boy. He liked to stay home with his mom and cook. Not that that's always bad. And you can imagine Jacob just kind of asking, hey, what's for dinner? And Esau says, whatever I kill. I'll be back in a minute. And he comes back home. He's got blood all over him, and he's got meat in his hands. Here's what's for dinner. Beef. <laughs> Another reason I would have chosen Esau is because Jacob was a crook. Jacob was a cheat. Jacob was a con artist. His name, Jacob, you know what it means? It literally means deceiver. And yet, that's what makes God's choice of Jacob so amazing. Jacob didn't deserve to be chosen. It was purely based on God's love and God's grace. God doesn't grade on a curve. If he did, let me tell you, Esau would have passed and Jacob would have certainly failed. God didn't choose the Israelites based on their goodness. God chose them based on His grace. That God, He knows His own people, these Israelites, need to be reminded of this fact, of this reality about them. And so He does so through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6-8. through Listen to what it says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, to be his people, his treasured possession. And now hear this. 
The Lord did not set His affection on you, His everlasting love on you, His love on you, and choose you because you were numerous or more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The fact that Israel was God's people was proof enough of God's love for them. For them to be His people meant they had to be chosen from among all the peoples of the earth, and those others, in essence, had to be rejected. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of last century, preached a message using these same verses in Malachi. And the story is told that when he finished the sermon, a lady approached Mr. Spurgeon with a look and feeling of frustration. And she told him that she just could not believe that God could hate anybody. And Spurgeon responded by saying, all you have to do to see why God hated Esau was to look at his wife. And then he made his famous statement. I really do understand how God could hate Esau, but what I really don't understand is how he could love Jacob. In other words, both were not deserving of God's love. That's really the crux of the matter here. The question is not, folks, please understand, the question is not how could God hate Esau. We are asking the wrong question. And yet it's the question in our limited understanding, it's the question in our rights-oriented America, fairness about everything, and our mentality flows over to that, and we place it on God. But that is not the right question. How could God hate Esau? No, the question is, how could he love Jacob? And the answer is, amazing grace. And so God is reminding us here today, just as he reminded the Israelites, that the evidence of his love is that he chose them out of all the inhabitants of the earth to be his special people. One other commentator describes God's answer this way. Listen to his words. He says, it is like the language of some weeping parent who seeks to woo back a prodigal child by recalling to his memory the love that has been lavished upon him. In other words, imagine with me, you can almost hear God calling out to Israel and saying in a soft and loving voice, why? Why do you doubt my love for you? Don't you see? Don't you remember that I chose you? That's the proof of my love for you. But God goes on. He gives them further proof. Number two, God demonstrated his love through the restoration of Israel and the destruction of Edom. Not only did God choose Israel when he chose Jacob, but he also cared for Israel whenever they were in trouble. 
Now again, a little history lesson here. Like other nations in that area, Edom suffered during the Babylonian invasion of Israel as well. Edom, you might remember, is the nation that came out of Esau. Israel is the nation that came out of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. So you got two nations, Israel and Edom, the Israelites and the Edomites. And Edom also suffered, just like Israel suffered, when Babylon came in, invaded the land, and took Israel captive. But the Lord, here's the difference, the Lord didn't promise to restore their land, Edom's land, as he had promised to restore Israel's land. The land of Edom remained in perpetual ruin due to their continued wickedness and rebelliousness against God. In other words, God is now reminding his people of that, of Edom's destruction as another demonstration of his love for them in these verses here, 3 through 5. Look what it says. And God says, And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, Oh, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. In other words, they can try to rebuild it, but I'm going to tear it back down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now keep in mind something here that the Edomites were indeed an evil people who deserved God's judgment. But you may be wondering, how, how in the world does God's judgment of Edom prove his love for Israel? Who is Israel after all? Are they really, is Israel, are they really any better than Edom? And the answer is, no. You look down through the history of Israel, and here's the deal. You can read it beginning in Genesis 12, all the way through Malachi, and even into the Gospels. Their history is one story after another of rebellion against God, sin against God in false worship. That's their history. And so Israel certainly deserved to be treated like Edom, the nation of Edom. But in God's love, in His grace for Israel, they didn't get what they deserved. Rather, they got what they didn't deserve. They got God's grace and blessing. Now, obviously, we're here today in the 21st century. And so centuries have come and gone since God last spoke to Israel through the book of Malachi. But God, nevertheless, still declares to his people, I have loved you. And one of the most crippling foes that we face is familiarity with this truth. God loves you. If you've been raised in church, you've heard that a thousand times. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And it, and it just kind of, we say it flippantly, we hear it nonchalantly, 
and it makes no impact on our lives anymore. But we can never, folks, hear more awesome words from our Heavenly Father than these four words, I have loved you. But sometimes our circumstances in our life today are such that we find ourselves wondering, doubting, questioning if God truly loves us, do we not? Who of us has not been there? And the devil, he is all too eager to tell us, oh yeah, yeah, your circumstances prove that God doesn't love you. He's whispering that in our ears. So here's the question as we end this morning. How then do I know God loves me? And the answer is, just look at the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle display of God's love for you. Now, understand something here with me. The cross of Jesus Christ does not remove the disappointment we experience in life. It does not remove the pain we experience in this life. Rather, the cross of Christ, it guards our hearts from doubt, and the cross causes us to remember God's love for us. Paul declares in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, one of my all-time favorite verses, but God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were sinners, what did Christ do for us? died for us. And so the next time you begin to doubt God's love, you just point yourself to the cross and you remind yourself, listen, this, the cross, that's where God proves His love for me. Listen, you will never, never, never believe God loves you until you see the love that God has shown you on the cross of Jesus Christ. The truth is, in our sinfulness, folks, let's be honest, the Bible tells us this, in our sinfulness, we deserve what? God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. In His grace, though, God doesn't give us what we deserve, but He does give what we deserve to someone else. And who was that someone else? He gave what we deserve? None other than His only begotten Son who He sent to be born, but sent to die on the cross for our sins. To preserve His justice, listen, sin must be punished. And to proclaim His love, sinners must be forgiven. And so God shows us grace. He shows us mercy by sending His own Son to die in our place. The cross of Jesus Christ, it is the pinnacle display of God's love for you. But folks, this love, it demands a response. So how have you responded to God's great love? Have you trusted Jesus for your salvation? Are you living today fully devoted to the Lord? Until we can see the love of God in the suffering of Christ on the cross, we will always doubt God's love when we experience suffering. But oh, when we taste, when we taste the love of God through faith in Jesus Christ, though we may feel, though our circumstances may cry out to us, 
my pain is great, we are able to declare God's love is greater. And so to help us to see even that reality, that truth this morning, to see the greatness of God's love at the cross, we're going to conclude with communion here. You say, what is communion? Well, communion is just all about remembering the love of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. And so as we come to the Lord's table, let us remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our salvation, the ultimate proof, this display of his love. Let us remember that the bread represents his broken body for you and that the juice that we're going to drink, it represents his blood that was shed for you. And let us remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-6, through where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us unconditionally. Thank you for showing that love at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you that through the sacrifice of your Son, we can be saved from our sins. Father, help us to remember the cross when we begin to doubt your love. And in response to your great love, give us the grace to live fully devoted to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The praise team's going to sing just one verse. And during this time while they're singing, that's, that's our response time. That's a time to quietly, where you're seated, just to respond to, to pray to God, to give thanks, or even to ask for forgiveness, to prepare your heart for participation in communion. And then when they're done singing a chorus, the music will continue to play. And as the music plays... All of those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ were invited to participate in communion by standing and walking to one of these four stations, four tables in the auditorium. And once you get the bread and the juice, you can take it back to your seat and take it there. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we invite you to watch as the church, the body of Christ, participates in communion. And as you watch, what you're going to see is really a picture of God's love when his son died on the cross for you. And it's our prayer that as you watch, that God will draw you to faith in Christ as a result of what you see here today. If you're a guest here and you're not comfortable taking communion with us this morning, that's perfectly all right as well. If you're a guest and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're more than welcome to take communion with uh, the rest of the body of believers here at Glenwood as the praise team sings.